I want you to imagine yourself to be in the year AD 367. Um, you're a Christian in whatever part of the Christian world that you, you want to want to place yourself in. Um, and you are waiting for a letter or you are waiting for a letter to be read out in uh, wherever you worship. And the letter that you're waiting for is what is the 39th festal letter from the Bishop of Alexandria, whose name was Athanasius. And it was the responsibility of the bishops of Alexandria to write out to the Christian world to tell everybody what the date of Easter was going to be that year. Easter is a movable feast. It still is uh, today for us. Um, today, we base the date of Easter on the full moon and the first Sunday of Advent or something like that. And, and you, you take those two uh, numbers and you add the number you first thought of and you arrive at the date of Easter. Um, back then, it was a slightly different calculation, but much as mysterious as it is today. And Bishop uh, Athanasius of Alexandria had obviously written 38 of these letters already, and this was his 39th. He wrote 45 of them altogether. And he wanted his 39th letter to be something special, something important. And so what he did in his 39th letter in AD 367 was to write out the books that made up the canon of the Old and the New Testaments. And it is the earliest full list of the 27 books of the New Testament that make up the canon that we have today that we know of that exists. Um, it was discovered in the 1800s uh, in a church in uh, Syria or somewhere like that, I think, one of the Eastern churches anyway. And um, they discovered this list and it has all 27 of the books of the New Testament. And one of the things that this has done is allow critics to argue that the formation of the New Testament took place over an extended period of time. It's generally accepted by critics. We're talking again about scholarly consensus and things like that. But it's generally accepted that all of the 27 books of the New Testament were written before AD 150 probably. And there's a lot of evidence for that. And we're going to be thinking about some of that this morning. Uh, but in terms of the formation and the decision that these books would be part of the New Testament, people like Bruce Metzger have argued that that took place over an extended period of time. And there's a, there's a couple of interesting quotes um, from Metzger's book on his introduction to the New Testament. Um, and he wrote, the collection of New Testament books took place gradually over many years by the pressure of various kinds of circumstances and influences. And it, it's an interesting quotation, and it tells us a couple of things. But the main thing that it tells us is a, a desperation to write out of the history of the Bible divine providence and the hand of God, that for critics, it is important to remove 
God from the equation. And we saw that with Brother Ron last night in terms of theistic evolution, that actually what it does is remove God as much as possible from our understanding of the origins of the universe. If, if, if the origin of the universe lasted over 14 billion years and there are a, a, a few small prods that God gave it to ensure that it ended up where it was, we're taking God out of the equation. We saw it with what Brother Bernard was talking about um, earlier this morning and the writings of the New Testament and the way in which critics want to take the writing of the Old Testament much further forward than it really was. Because again, it allows us to remove God from the writing of the Bible. And it's the same thing with the arguments about the way in which the New Testament canon and the New Testament books were written. To remove God from what happened. The collection of the New Testament apparently took place by the pressure of various kinds of circumstances and influences. We don't need God to explain why we have Matthew to Revelation. We can explain it in various other ways. And that, of course, isn't true. And the lie to that particular <laughs> statement is put by something that, that um, Metzger then goes on to say slightly later on. And what he says is, nothing is more amazing in the annals of the Christian church than the absence of detailed accounts of so significant a process. And so on the one hand, the formation of the New Testament took place over a long period of time and happened because of various circumstances and various influences and historical influences forged the reasons why. And there are a number of arguments for that. And Brother Byrne has already mentioned Marcion, um, the critic, uh, the heretic and the critic of the Bible from the sort of mid second century AD. And he is considered to be one of the influencers. His, his cutting up of the, the New Testament was, was fiercely uh, argued against by a number of what are known as early church fathers. And, and that is considered to be one of the ways in which the canon was formed. And yet, on the other hand, there is no evidence that that is what happened. We have this list of writing, list, list of books from AD 367 by Athanasius. And so we have that terminus ad quem, if you like, to the point at which it can't have happened after that. It can't have been formed after 367. And we have acknowledgement of the fact that the New Testament books, all 27 of them, were written at least before 150, and we're going to argue that it's earlier, it's much earlier than that, that they were written contemporaneously with the events that they are recording, just as Brother Bernard has shown with the Old Testament. But there is nothing in between that would argue that, that we could point to or ev evidence for the fact that the New Testament canon was formed over that period of time. Nothing is more amazing than that says Bruce Metzger. And of course, the reason why there is no evidence is that that's not how it happened. That the New Testament canon was formed by God 
under the direction or by the early ecclesias under the direction of God and the Holy Spirit. And we will see how that works and we will see what happened as the first century ecclesias were being established and the way in which the word of God grew alongside them and the way in which for us to understand the New Testament, we have to recognise that it must have been in existence to be used by those early ecclesias at the times at which the writings were taking place. The Bible has been under attack for many years and we need to be very strong in our confidence in the things that God has written for us. We want to confirm our faith in the writings of the Almighty today. And to do that, we're going to start in the book of Genesis. Our brother Bernard, talking about the Old Testament, started in Galatians. We're going to start in Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. There are a couple of places that, that we could uh, think about just to make the point that I want to make. But Genesis 14 is the one we're going to look at. So Genesis 14, we will know the record of Melchizedek and the record of the battle of the kings. And we are told in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 1 that it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. So the way that we are introduced to these people in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 14, the, the formulaic way in which we are introduced to these people is name, king of place, basically. So today we would say Elizabeth, queen of the United Kingdom, for instance, and that would match up to that formula. Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, etc., and then we have verse 18, Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18, where we are told that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And we can just pass over that because that's exactly the same formula, isn't it, as introduced the kings in chapter 14 and verse 1, name, king of place. Melchizedek, king of Salem. And yet we can't just pass over that. Because in Hebrews and chapter 7, we are told that when it says Melchizedek, king of Salem, there is theological significance to the order of those words. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Salem means peace. And he is first king of righteousness and then king of peace. And the principle throughout scripture is that there must be righteousness before there is peace. So this isn't a formula. Name king of place. This is the way that God has designed it to be written so that his principles are revealed. And it 
takes for us the writings in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, for us to be able to be certain that that's what's happening here in Genesis 14 verse 18. But what it does is give us a principle for understanding the care with which the word of God was crafted. And what it tells us is that the unit of divine revelation is the individual word. That God has placed these words in the order in which they are written and there is significance to them. Now, I'm not going to argue that we can understand the significance in every case. I don't know whether where it says Amraphel, king of Shinar in chapter 14 and verse 1, that that is significant. But what we can say, using Genesis 14 and Hebrews chapter 7, is that the order in which Genesis 14 verse 18 is written has significance in revealing to us the principles of God. And if that's the case, we can be certain that God wouldn't allow this to be written in any other way and God wouldn't allow his servants to have it revealed to them in any other way. If God is going to take the care to place within his word principles that we find here in Genesis 14 verse 18, we can be confident that God will take the care to ensure that this is what we have, that what we have is the divine revelation of the word of God, word by word. The classic example of this, of course, is one that Brother Bernard almost touched on when we were looking at Galatians and Galatians chapter three. It says not seed, seeds as of many, but seed as of one. And that seed is Christ. The promises to Abraham refer to one singular seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the argument is, because that word isn't plural, we can understand that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that, that's not an argument from man. That is a divine argument. It doesn't say seeds by mistake. It says seed specifically and purposefully. And that's how we need to consider the word of God. And with that confidence, the, the, the confidence that we can, we can see the way in which God has carefully crafted his word, we can be confident then that what we have is the word of God. That there isn't any question about the veracity of Genesis 1 through 11 or the prophecies in the Old Testament that they were written after the fact. God has carefully put this and revealed it to us. And this is true of the New Testament as well. 
It's not just an Old Testament thing. Come and have a look at the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are told about the bringing in of the Gentiles and the way in which the Gentiles are made part of the family of God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, made nigh by the blood of Christ, says verse 13. But verse 19 of Ephesians 2 tells us that we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the spirit and what Ephesians chapter 2 is telling us is that God is building a habitation for himself that God is crafting a temple where he might dwell. And he is doing that through the medium of his word, built upon the foundation, says verse 20, of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The word prophets here is referring to New Testament prophets, not, not the Old Testament prophets that we've been looking at with Brother Bernard. These are New Testament prophets. And we know that because of the context in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 carries on and makes reference again to these prophets in verse 5. It says, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. By the Spirit. So these prophets are people who are receiving revelation from God now in the terms of Ephesians chapter 3, in the first century as part of the first century ecclesia. These are New Testament prophets. And so what we're being told is that the members of the early ecclesias were endowed with the Spirit to reveal the word and the will of God and his son. And we know that and we believe that. But they are referred to here as the apostles and the prophets, and they are the basis upon which God is forming his ecclesia. God is building his habitation. We could look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and see the list of the, the Holy Spirit gifts and see how prophecy comes right at the very top. because that was the means by which God was establishing his ecclesia. And there is an acknowledgement of this by Christ, isn't there, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. Upon the work of the apostles and the prophets, the ecclesia was going to be built. We tend to imagine, don't we, as when we're thinking about the first century and when we're thinking about preaching and the way in which preaching was done, 
we tend to imagine preaching very much in the, the context of what we do today. We pick an area, we go out, we build, we talk. But of course, that, that wasn't quite how it happened in the first century, was it? Just come with me to the Gospel of John, and we'll have a look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 25, Jesus speaking to his disciples and he says to them, John 14 verse 25, these things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. And we get the same thing emphasized in John chapter 15 and John chapter 16. We'll skip over John 15, but in John chapter 16 and verse 13, it says, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, it will guide you into all truth. It shall not speak of itself, but whatsoever it shall speak. Here, that shall he speak, and it shall show you things to come. The preaching of the first century was directed by the Spirit, was specifically guided by the Spirit so that the truth of God would be revealed. It wasn't people going out, deciding what they wanted to say and saying it. It wasn't people going out, deciding where they wanted to go, going there and saying what they wanted to say. It was all under the guidance of the Spirit. You will remember in Acts chapter 16, in the record of uh, the Apostle Paul on that second missionary journey when he went to Philippi. And the reason that he ended up in Philippi wasn't his own will, but because having decided he wanted to go to Bithynia, the Spirit stepped in and said, that's not where you're going. Come over into Macedonia to help us. And the preaching of the Apostle Paul was specifically directed by the Spirit so that the Ecclesia would grow in the way that God required it. It was a careful direction. We could have another look. Have, come with me to the first of Corinthians and chapter nine. In first of Corinthians and chapter nine, <clears throat> And verse 16, it says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. The point that is being made, the Apostle Paul had no choice in the matter of preaching the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me, is what he said. And it even informs the way in which he went about his 
preaching. To the weak, he says in verse 22, became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men. He preached where the Spirit drove him, when the Spirit drove him, in the manner in which the Spirit drove him. This was how first century preaching happened. And if that is the case, brothers and sisters, if we accept that first century preaching was so carefully directed by God, how could we believe that his word came by anything other than careful direction? The word which would be the revelation of God for thousands of years past the point at which the preaching had finished, the preaching of the first century had finished. I want to think for a second about the Old Testament model, because um, Brother Bernard had as his reading Deuteronomy chapter 31. Just come with me. Keep uh, a marker or something in First of Corinthians, but come back with me to Deuteronomy and chapter 31. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 31, we are given a model for the way in which the word of God was given to the people. And we, we, we've seen this with Brother Bernard, so it, it, we won't take long. But we saw in verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 31, that Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and to all the elders of Israel. And now come over to verse 25, where it says, uh, in verse 24, it says that Mo when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, saying, take this book of the law, put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. Deuteronomy was a spoken revelation from God. God spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to the people the words of God. That revelation was then written down, delivered, says verse 9, to the priests and placed by the side of the Ark of the Covenant. So that spoken revelation became a written word which was placed by the ark. Now come back to 1st of Corinthians, hopefully you did keep something there, and have a look at 1st of Corinthians chapter 15. Because in 1st of Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, <clears throat> we are told, we, we, we have this record, don't we, of the preaching of the gospel. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand. It was a, an oral gospel that was spoken. It was a gospel that was spoken by the Apostle Paul. But then verse 3 says, 
I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Paul received the gospel and it was then delivered to the people. Just as happened back in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Moses received the word from God. It was written down and delivered to the priests. The Apostle Paul, through the Spirit here, is showing that that model continued and carried on. The New Testament wasn't done in a different way from the Old Testament. The model of the Old Testament continued. The position of the scroll by the ark, by the place of the body of Christ. The ark represents Christ, doesn't it? The scroll placed there. And so the ecclesia of God has within it the word of God, which has been delivered to it by the prophets. Come back in first of Corinthians to first of Corinthians and chapter 11. First of Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Paul received and delivered, just like Moses in Deuteronomy. And it's all speaking about the inspired writing which Paul had given to them, which he had received from God. He doesn't make the claim that it is his words. They aren't the words of Paul. They are the words of the Spirit. He claims no original thought. These letters aren't his own. He has been given the word and he has then delivered that word. We could have a look in Romans and we're not going to to think about um, in Romans chapter two. There are a couple of occurrences. Well, there are a couple of occurrences in Romans, one in Romans two, one in Romans 16, where Paul speaks about my gospel. He has given them my gospel. But if we had a look at second of Timothy um, in second of Timothy chapter two, we can see in second of Timothy chapter two that the reference to my gospel there is not a reference that the apostle Paul is making to the fact that it is a gospel which is his of design, but it is his of deliverance. Second of Timothy chapter two and verse eight says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. There is an equivalence there between the word of God and my gospel. The apostle Paul is very clear again, through the Spirit, in showing that this is the word of God, the gospel which Paul had given, Paul had received from God, which he delivered to the people. We now want to think about that reading that we had, very, very briefly think about Luke chapter 1. And we will get on to answering the, the, the question in the title about 
when the, the books of the New Testament were written uh, and showing that, that they were written early. But it, it, it's important to understand that we can have great confidence in the fact that God has revealed these things to his prophets. So Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. And it seems as though what we are being told is that Luke sat down, decided, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of Gospels going around. I should probably write down one of my own. And he went out and he investigated and he looked into matters and he got eyewitness records and he wrote stuff down and he went back home with all of his notes and then he wrote up his notes um, and presented it to the world as a gospel. So this is my accurate reflections on the life of Christ. And people will tell you that that is what happened. That is how the gospel of Luke came to be. That Luke discovered what he wrote from other people. Now that doesn't fit with how we understand the Bible to have come to be. There is very little way in which you could therefore say that the gospel of Luke was the word of God if you accepted that version of events. But that's not what is being described here in Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. Luke chapter 1 verse 2 tells us um, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now that phrase, ministers of the word, is an interesting word. It doesn't come very often. The word minister means to be an attendant. It's the same word that comes, you don't need to look at this, but in Luke chapter 4 in our reading for the day, where we are told in Luke 4 verse 20 that Jesus closes the scroll and gives it back to the minister and sits down there was a minister who was there to keep the word of God in this case the, the scroll of the, the prophet Isaiah and this idea of the minister of the word seems to be taken up certainly in the Acts of the Apostles as being an example of one who was responsible for oral teaching so have a look at Acts and chapter 13, because in Acts chapter 13, we are told in verse 5, <clears throat> when in verse 4 we're told that um, Saul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So, so we've got, again, this confirmation that the preaching of the first century was done by direction from the Holy Spirit. And they depart unto Seleucia, and from thence they sail to Cyprus. In verse 5, we're told that they were at Salamis, and they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. 
And in this context, we are told, they had also John to their minister. And this is the John Mark who would cause sharp dissension between Paul and Barnabas later on. But here he is their minister with them. And it's in the context of preaching the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And the picture that we've got then is of the preaching that's done by the Apostle Paul and by Barnabas. And they would go out and they would preach the truth. And they would have Mark there as confirmation of the truth that they were preaching. And he would be the minister of the word for them. That he would take care that the people understood the truths that were being preached to them. This was all being done under the direction of the Holy Spirit, of course. Verse 4 tells us that. They were sent forth by the Holy Spirit. They went to where the Holy Spirit took them. They spoke the words that the Holy Spirit gave them. And Mark was there to confirm that message which was given. Mark was there possibly leading the, the memorization of the gospel that was preached by Paul and Barnabas. You couldn't just have it that... Paul and Barnabas turned up, preached the word and then left and, and left people. Just, what did they say? What was it? That, what, I, I can't remember. I can't quite remember what the message of Paul was. Mark was there as their minister to ensure by the spirit that that truth was remembered and memorized. And we get a picture of this back in Luke chapter 1 in verse 4, where it's referring to Theophilus and it says that he might know the certainty of those things wherein he has been instructed. That word instructed there is the idea of being taught by word of mouth. He had received the gospel by word of mouth. And again, we don't believe that was accidental. It was directed by the Spirit. And now Luke was being given this charge to write these things down to confirm that oral teaching which had already happened. Verse 3 says, It seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. People tend to take that as sort of some indication that Luke's gospel is recording events which happened before Matthew, Mark and John's gospel. Um, there is the, the record of John the Baptist and Zacharias and Elizabeth, for instance, which chronologically speaking take place beforehand. But the Greek word that is used there where it says from the very first is a Greek word with two parts to it. Um, it's the Greek word anothen. Um, the, the first part of it is the Greek word anno. The second part of it is the, the word then. Sticking the then at the end of a Greek word um, gives the idea of something coming from somewhere. 
so here it's translated from the very first. But that anno part doesn't mean the very first. It means above. So the Greek word anothen means from above. And it's interesting, you can look in uh, Greek lexicons, specifically on the New Testament or in general, uh, classical Greek lexicons, that they will both tell you the same thing. That the Greek word anothen means from above because of this suffix then, which means from, and, and then the prefix anno, which means above. But New Testament lexicons will tend to say that it could also mean from the beginning. And the example they will give for the fact that it could also mean from the beginning is Luke chapter 1 verse 3. And that's an interpretation. That is, the writers of the lexicon looking at Luke chapter 1 verse 3 saying well that word must mean from the beginning and I guess it's talking about the fact that Luke wrote about stuff earlier than Matthew Mark and John so that must mean me that must be a meaning for this word but that's interpretive and it's not what the word means it's not how you translate it naturally if you were starting out learning Greek for the first time and you, you learned what this word meant you would not be told it meant from the beginning you would be told it meant from above and you would fit that into here and say in Luke chapter 1 and verse 3 that to translate that you would translate that as that Luke had perfect understanding of all things from above and the next step would be to try to understand what from above meant which is backwards from the way that people who have put together the lexicons have done it, which is to say, well, it must mean from the beginning here. So that's what the word, that must be a meaning that the word has. And it's not true. And it's not the case. The word here, just as it does throughout the rest of the scriptures, means from above. And when we understand that, we understand, therefore, that Luke isn't saying, I decided to sit down and write what I'd heard from people who had seen Jesus. What Luke is saying is, he has received this gospel from God, and it was good to write it down. And we can prove that. Luke's gospel contains an account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Luke's gospel tells us of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweat, his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. There was no one with Jesus when that happened because when that happened Jesus was a stone's throw away from his disciples and they were asleep Jesus was there in the garden himself and his father 
and the angel who strengthened him. There were no eyewitnesses. There was no one that Luke could go to and say, I've heard about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you tell me what happened? Because they couldn't. The Gospel of Luke isn't the result of Luke's investigative journalism. It is the result of Luke being directed by the Spirit to write down what happened. Luke was inspired to write these things down. Why would we think, with all the care that was taken over the preaching in the New Testament, in the first century, God would then just let people go out, make their own notes and write their own Gospels. That's not how it happened. So when were these things written? We've been focusing on the Gospel of Luke. We're going to carry on doing that. But we want to come to 1st of Thessalonians first. So come with me and have a look at 1st of Thessalonians and chapter 3. Because we know when 1st of Thessalonians was written based on what 1st of Thessalonians says. So 1st of Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us, When we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So, in terms of historical detail, we have the Apostle Paul in Athens. We have Timothy being sent from Athens to Thessalonica, which is where the Thessalonians were, to establish them and to comfort them. And then in verse 6, Timothy comes back. So Timothy has been in Thessalonica and has come back to the Apostle Paul. And we know when this was. Because we know when Paul visited Athens, Acts chapter 17 and 18 tell us about Paul going to Thessalonica and then Berea because he was forced out of Thessalonica. Then he was forced out of Berea. So he went out and he went to Athens. He was in Athens for a while by himself waiting for Timothy and Silas to come and meet him. When Timothy and Silas met him, it seems like they went to Corinth and Paul sent them back to Thessalonica and then they returned to Paul while he was in Corinth and then he wrote 1st of Thessalonians chapter 3 and this all took place somewhere around AD 50 to AD 52 this was the the, the time period for Acts 17 and 18 this is when 1st of Thessalonians was written we can anchor first of Thessalonians to that time period based on what the Apostle Paul is writing about the events that happened that the toing and froing between Athens and Corinth and Thessalonica that happened between Paul and Timothy having received understanding from Timothy Paul then is inspired to write first of Thessalonians to confirm their faith. Now this 
is interesting for us, and I said we would be thinking about the Gospel of Luke, when we come to 1st of Thessalonians chapter 5. Because 1st of Thessalonians chapter 5 <clears throat> has a couple of different bases for it. The, there is an Old Testament basis for First of Thessalonians 5, which is Second Chronicles chapter 18 and the record of Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And you can go through First of Thessalonians chapter 5 and pick out key phrases and they come from that record in First of Chronicles chapter, Second of Chronicles, sorry, chapter 18. So the phrase peace and safety, for instance, in verse 3, taken from Second of Chronicles 18. But the other place that first of Thessalonians draws from is the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Matthew and their records of what Jesus said when he was on Mount Olivet and he prophesied of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And first of Thessalonians chapter five contains a host of references back to that prophecy of the Lord Jesus enough references that we can say that when first of thessalonians chapter 5 was written it was referring to a written record of what jesus said on the mount of olives it can't have been the other way round it can't be that thessalonians was written first and then luke wrote his gospel and referred back to what had been written by Paul in 1st of Thessalonians chapter 5, because Luke chapter 21 is a record of the words of Christ. They weren't spoken after 1st of Thessalonians 5. They can't have been, because it's, it's a record of a historical event that actually happened. But the Phrases that are drawn out of 1st of Thessalonians 5 show us that the Gospel of Luke must have been written and must have been available to an ecclesia in Thessalonica by AD 50, 52, 53, somewhere around there. And that it could be expected of them to hear phrases like 1st of Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, and to make that link back to the gospel records, the gospel of Matthew in this case, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 43. Or for them to hear, for instance, the exhortation in verse 7, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. And to make the connection back to Luke 21, verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. What day? The day of the Lord that first of Thessalonians 5 is referring to. Or, for instance, they could read 1st of Thessalonians 5 verse 9, which says, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And they could go back into Luke and read Luke 21 and verse 23. 
Woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. But, says verse 28, when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Or they could read the exhortation in verse 17 of First of Thessalonians 5, which says to them, pray without ceasing. And they would remember Luke 21 and verse 36. Watch ye therefore and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Watch ye therefore pray always so that ye might escape. For when, says First of Thessalonians 5 verse 3, they shall say peace and safety, sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Therefore, says verse 6, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. First of Thessalonians chapter 5 uses the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 21 to tell the Thessalonian Ecclesia to be aware of what was coming. Now Thessalonians is referring not to AD 70, but to the coming kingdom and the judgment which would be. But the arguments is, as the exhortation is the same. Judgment is coming. And we must watch ourselves. First of Thessalonians was written by A.D. 55, almost certainly at that point. The Gospel of Luke, therefore, must have been written at that time and have been known to them. Because otherwise, why quote from it? How quote from it? We can go back even further Acts chapter 3 and verse 4 gives us the record of Peter and John healing the lame man. Acts chapter 3 and verse 4. Well, he sees them in verse 3. Verse 4, Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. He looked to them. And what he received was salvation, the healing of his ankles, give the strength to his legs and salvation for himself. Now, that incident in Acts chapter three and that that idea, particularly of the idea of fastening of eyes and looking is drawing on our reading for today in Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stands up to read. And there was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he opens the book, and he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me. What has he done? He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus has come to bring salvation to those who need it. The man laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. And Jesus closes the book or the scroll in verse 20. He gives it again to the minister. He sits down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Same as this man here in Acts chapter 3. There is a reference made in Acts chapter 3 back to Luke chapter 4. And the, the incidents match up and the context matches up. What we can say is that the writings of the New Testament were written contemporaneously to the events which they describe. They were being written at the time at which these things were happen, happening, or at the very least, very shortly afterwards. The Gospels were written within the lifetimes of those who would remember the death and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the word of God was there to establish the ecclesias. And it needed to be there so that the ecclesias could be established. And the Gospels, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to bring salvation, were the core of that word. And so they were written to be there for the first century and to then be referred to by the apostles as they were writing letters to them. We have that record, don't we, in 1st of Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, in fact, let's go and have a look. 1st of Corinthians chapter 7. Corinthians almost certainly written the same sort of time as Thessalonians, uh, written AD 50 to 55. And 1st of Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. And what is being said in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10 is, there are words of the Lord Jesus Christ that you can read in the Gospels which confirm this teaching. Let not the wife depart from her husband. That's contrasted with verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I have my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. There was no commandment in the Gospels referring to virgins. This went beyond the words of Christ. 
But verse 10, there was clear instruction from Christ that had been recorded in the gospel records and written down and given to the ecclesias. And they could refer to them and they could see that the teaching here in 1st of Corinthians inspired, the Apostle Paul inspired to write these things down, matched what Christ had said. And so that the purpose of the writings of the New Testament can show us that they must have been written early on. We have more evidence of this. Come with me to 1st of Timothy in chapter 5. Have a look in the, the first letter of Timothy in chapter 5. Again, this is an, another quotation back to Luke. 1st of Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18. For it says, the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. And that's Deuteronomy. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. And, says verse 18, the labourer is worthy of his hire. And that is Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. Now it's interesting. Your margin will tell you that it's cited from Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. Then it might have a little question mark after it. But we can say that this is evidence that the Gospel of Luke was written and in circulation at the time at which the Apostle Paul wrote 1st of Timothy. So that it could be referred to and it could be referred to alongside Deuteronomy as scripture. And here is the next key point, because this is the point which shows that the canon wasn't put together 300 years later. That it wasn't gradually formed over a period of time, but a mysterious period of time because we've got no evidence for it. Because the writings of the New Testament were certified at the time at which they were written. And there was authentication which was done to confirm that these things were true. Second of Thessalonians, back a few pages, Second of Thessalonians and chapter 2. Second of Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 2 which says that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So at the time at which Second Thessalonians was written, which was after First of Thessalonians, but probably not that far after, we're still within the AD 50s, there were forgeries of letters of the Apostle Paul which were circulating the ecclesias. There's an argument that is made about textual transmission that talks about um, the fact that the antiquity of the text is evidence of its purity in terms of the original. But what we can see here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that very early on, there were already forgeries of letters which purported to be from the Apostle Paul. 
And there are uh, other things we can see. We can look at the Gospel of John, uh, the epistles of John, and we can see how there was extreme heresy, which was finding its way within the ecclesias at a very early date. Antiquity is not necessarily evidence of purity, is, is it the point, sort of the, the side point that we're making. But the point here in 2 Thessalonians 2 was there were forgeries and the ecclesias needed some way of being able to categorically state that the letters that they had were the true letters of the, the spirit. They were scripture and not these forgeries. And we know, don't we, brothers and sisters, how that happened. That the ecclesias were given spirit gifts, and one of them was the ability to adjudicate whether a letter was true or not. We read, don't we, in Thessalonians, that they were to try the spirits. I say in Thessalonians, I'm not now certain that that's true. I, I, I believe it's true. Sorry. It's not try the spirits, is it? it's proving all things. First of Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. And they weren't left on their own to prove those things. The spirit gifts were given to them so that the early ecclesia could make a determination and say, this is a work of the spirit. This is not a work of the spirit. So again, the New Testament canon was being formed at the time at which the letters were being written. There wasn't a, a gap or a consultation period. There wasn't a church council which needed to be formed, which could sit down and say, yes, this book is right and no, that book isn't. That wasn't left up to people. God, who all the way through history has carefully crafted his word so that we can be confident that when we read, that we are to rejoice evermore, that that's what God wants us to do. Because it isn't the word of man, it is the word of God. And first of Thessalonians isn't a letter of man, it is a letter of God. And the same thing applies throughout the New Testament. As the word of God was being written and preached, it was being certified and confirmed by the Spirit. God didn't leave anything to chance, brothers and sisters. I just want to show you this and then, then we will finish because I think it's almost certainly past time to finish. Acts chapter 6, please. Come to Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Because the Acts of the Apostle charts for us the way in which the word of God came. We are told in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. So this is extremely early on. Very soon after the crucifixion of Christ and the scattering of um, and the the preaching of the truth within Jerusalem we are told in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 that the word of God increased now that word increased there means 
to get bigger or to be augmented. It's not talking about the spread of the word of God. It's talking about the fact that people were writing down the word and that written word was growing. The gospel writers were working to write the gospels and that they were then being made available to the people. And it's not talking about the number of people, because that is the next point that's made. The word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Those aren't parallel statements. We're talking about two different things. Come to Acts chapter 12. Have a look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. Where we are told in Acts chapter 12, we're told about the, the death of Herod eaten by worms in Acts chapter 23 verse 24 but the word of God grew and multiplied people were writing down the word of God and it was spreading out Acts chapter 19 have a look at Acts 19 and verse 20 And this is interesting because this is in the context of people burning their books. We are told in Acts chapter 19 and verse 18 that many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many, it says in verse 19, of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So there is a contrast being made between the written word of God and the written books of the, those who practiced curious arts, the, the magicians, basically, who had their books of magical spells. And they burnt them. But the word of God continued to grow. The word of God continued to be revealed. Letters were written. Ecclesias were strengthened because the word of God went out. This is how God has treated with his people throughout history. He has provided them a written record of his truth. Abraham had his gospel written down. So did the early ecclesias and the believers and followers of Christ at this time. And so, brothers and sisters, do we. The evidence is overwhelming that God caused his word to be written and formed into a set of books which would reveal his truth. And we have that truth today in his word. And it is assailed on every side by people who want to say and want to make the Bible say what they want it to. And the only way they can do that is by taking parts out or adding parts in or changing little bits. And to do that, they need to remove God. This is the word of God. 
revealed to us today to give us salvation and strength and encouragement as we look towards the kingdom. We can trust that when we read these books, we are reading his word. Thank you. Thank you.